This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Bruce Van Soen. He is the chairman and CEO of Citizens Financial Group. They are a $165 billion bank, the 12th largest in the United States. If you are at all interested in banking, financing, middle market, private equity, just a whole run of different um, aspects of the financial services world, you're going to find this conversation to be quite interesting. Uh, Bruce is really a very knowledgeable and articulate um, spokesman on not only behalf of his bank, but the banking industry in general. He has a really good insight as to what's going on in both the industry and the economy. Uh, so I, I found this conversation to be fascinating, and I think you will also. With no further ado, my interview with Bruce Van Sorn. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Bruce Van Sorn. He is the chairman and chief executive officer of Citizens Financial Group. Uh, they were spun out from RBS back in 2014, where Van Sorn led a successful initial public offering previously he had been executive director on the RBS board uh, for the prior four or five years. Before that, he was vice chairman and CFO at the Bank of New York. Mellon, uh, his previous career stints include Deutsche Bank, Wasserstein Perella, and Kidder Peabody. Bruce Van Sorn, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks. My pleasure to be here, Barry. Let's start at the Bank of New York and Bank of New York Mellon. You. Where were you during the financial crisis? Which What was the name at the time? Well, I had uh, left by then. So I joined Bank of New York in 1997. Uh -huh. The biggest crisis I experienced there was when 9-11 hit, and we were sure. basically uh, out of business there for a few days, and we had to scramble to get the bank back on its feet. Mm -hmm. But uh, how, after, how, Were you downtown? Yeah, You're we right were right downtown. Wall Street, so right? one Wall Street was the headquarters building, and then mm -hmm. Barclays was, Street was the operations center. Right. And so we were kind of straddling the World Trade Center buildings, wow. and when you couldn't have access to downtown, uh, we had to work out of other offices that we scrambled to secure, and then we had to stand up a new data center with IBM's help in Sterling Forest. So that was an exciting period. How, how long did it take for you guys to get back up and running after well, that it was, attack? It was, it was a couple days, uh, and then we had a lot of uh, pressure to basically start moving money and move securities and clear out the backlog that had right. piled up for a couple of days. Sure. Uh, so You had backup facilities. Yeah. You weren't just – that wasn't the sole location. It was yeah. relatively easy to turn but around. But we didn't have the same kind of resiliency that banks have today. Right. So after, in the wake of that, uh, Bank of New York went out and built a brand new spanking data center out in Tennessee. Um, and so we were constantly uh, ready to flip over, but we weren't at that level of resiliency at that time. The, the cloud has changed everything for banks and financial institutions? Yeah, I think the is cloud is part of that. So yeah. part of it was just making the investment and recognizing the need uh, for a higher level of resiliency. But now uh, moving things to the cloud and running your infrastructure in the cloud, I think, offers some great promise to lower costs and also increase security. And you were at RBS then in 0809, is that yes, right? Yes. So, so uh, the reason I missed the crisis, we had merged with Mellon, and uh, I stayed through the transition. Uh, we had appointed a new CEO, so I wanted to go do something else. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and I was out by July of 08. The crisis was in the fall of 08, right. so uh, it was nice not to be in the hot seat during that. Uh, I was working in private equity for about a year trying to put deals together, and then RBS came a-calling. Uh, they had wanted to put a new management team in place to help right the ship after RBS uh, took a tumble in the crisis and needed a government bailout. So I joined Stephen Hester there. I was the CFO, and uh, we had a lot of surgery due in terms of shrinking the bank and getting it back to safety. So you mentioned private equity. Citizens Financial is sort of a, can I call them a middleware sort of bank? Does a lot of work with um, not the giant entities out there, but a lot of very other large entities that I think are a little below the radar of the public. Is that a, a yeah? Fair so here's the you know the the kind of uh, lay of the land in terms of our commercial business. So uh, we focus on middle market companies, which are maybe 25 million to 500 million in revenues, mm-hmm. and then also the mid corporate segment, which is 500 million to about three billion in revenues. Uh, over time, since I've joined Citizens, we've taken the middle market uh, customer count from about 2,000 up to about 3,000. And mid-corporates we've taken from about 500 up to about 1,000. So uh, we've grown faster at the bigger company end. Uh, And what you need there to be competitive is you need bankers with industry expertise. So we had to go out and recruit in some bankers uh, for technology or healthcare or energy uh, so they could really serve those customers well. And they could bring previous relationships from their last bank over to citizens. And so we've had some, some really nice growth Uh, But we're not focusing on the household name Fortune 500 companies. We're staying a little bit below that radar. And we can compete very effectively against the mega banks. There's oftentimes we're leading deals and we'll have JP Morgan or B of A on our right or we're winning a swap transaction against the mega banks. So we have really good capabilities, but we stay focused on an area that that we know and we can compete effectively. So I've noticed on Wall Street um, hedge funds and venture capital – seem to be going through a bit of a rough patch, but private equity just is a house of fire. It just yeah. expands rapidly. How does that Well, private equity is, uh, is a good customer segment for us in the commercial bank, and we have focused over time on, say, 50 to 60 sponsors that we know well, uh, that we think they're good operators, uh, they invest uh, wisely, uh, and they're good to their banks. And, and when they need to put equity back into a deal to uh, right the ship, uh, if something's a little stressed, uh, they do that. So uh, that's where we've stayed focused. We haven't tried to move and compete for all the business that's taking place there. And I think client selection has been really critical. So those firms know us well. They give us the swings at the bat. They let us uh, lead transactions and then also also provide more services to their investee companies. So that's been a really good strategy for us. I would say uh, similarly uh, with commercial real estate, uh, the developers we focus on, we've known for a long time, we think they're good operators. And so uh, again, uh, we build those strong relationships and we get good swings at the bat when they're doing things and uh, like to include us in the deals that they do. And then they give us a chance to get more of their wallet because they know we have the capabilities. That sounds quite quite interesting. Yeah. So let's start with a really broad topic. Since the crisis ended in 2009, there have been just enormous changes in banking and regulation and even the entire economy. How has the role of a CEO running a bank 
changed over this period? How has banking changed over this yeah, period? It's a very broad question. Uh, I'll break that down. So, you know, after the crisis, it was clear that uh, there needed to be some reforms, first around I'd say the prudential regulation about how banks, uh, did they have enough capital, did they have the right funding and liquidity structures, and so um, were they managing risk the right way. So we had uh, a whole framework that was put in place that was agreed globally, basically, around capital, liquidity, funding, running stress tests. Uh, and I think that was really positive. So uh, we learned a lot from the crisis, and we put those lessons to use. Uh, so a big part of our efforts uh, early days was to make sure that we were keeping up with those increasing demands uh, around the prudent regulation. The second element of regulation was around really conduct and culture. Mm-hmm. And so uh, banks, I think, weren't always that transparent with their fees, and sometimes they were working against their customer instead of working for their customer. Right. And so there needed to be change there as well. And so that whole agenda came in as in the second wave after the prudential agenda. And I think that's also been very positive uh, in terms of creating the right mindset and culture inside banks in terms of, you know, we have to be the trusted advisor. We have to be working for the benefit of our customers, giving them good advice, being simple, being transparent on our fees. Have we come full circle? I think when, we've when come you've... a long way. You know, the one kind of bump in the road, unfortunately, was uh, the Wells Fargo uh, selling scandal, which kind of made folks think, well, maybe there hasn't been any change here in banks, when in fact, I think most of the banks had come through and made the appropriate changes. So that They're was, the outlier compared yeah, to the Yeah, I think that was sector. it. That was a black eye for the industry, and they're paying the piper for that. Uh, yeah. They now have a new CEO, and they're working hard on their regulatory equation, and it's been a great bank for de- generations and will continue to be. I think they'll get back on track, but that was, that was unfortunate for the industry, I think. Uh, so the regulatory agenda was a big thing to keep up with. Uh, the second thing that's changed a lot is, uh, you know, technology has moved in warp speed to kind of dimensions nobody thought possible. So moving infrastructure to the cloud, uh, new ways of development around an agile framework, uh, which speeds things up, uh, going to digital first business models, uh, using data to personalize uh, offers to your customers so they don't waste their time. Uh, you know, you see what's happening in other industries and customer expectations for change and for a level of service have really increased uh, given what they see elsewhere. And so sure. banks have had to make the investments and go through a significant change in the business model to, to, to meet those expectations. So it's really kept it very interesting to, to keep up with all the change that we've had to over, over the last few years. You know, when the new CEO of Vanguard came in, the, his answer to a question I found most fascinating, what, what keeps you up at night, his answer was security and hackers. How big a deal is that? And is technology helping us in this space or, or making it worse? Well, um, Seems I, to be an arms I, I think it is a, a big deal, and I think most CEOs of uh, financial institutions trusted with keeping customers' assets and data safe uh, have to have that as the top uh, issue on the priority list, top risk that we face. Uh, fortunately, um, there are advances in technology and new tools to actually uh, help protect uh, all of those those assets and that data. Uh, and 
And, you know, I think it also uh, requires hiring top talent. Um, we feel really good at Citizens. We've hired uh, a leading uh, expert in cybersecurity who's had some big jobs elsewhere uh, who um, I think knows what good looks like and has moved us into the future very, very quickly has good followership, has brought additional good people into the organization. And then we've prioritized the tools that she needs to really keep the bank safe. Uh, so that kind of goes right to the top of the capital expenditure list. And uh, I mm-hmm. think that'll continue to be the case because there's a lot of bad guys out there. They don't come into branches with a, a stocking over their head and a water <laughs> pistol and pass a note to the teller anymore. Right. That's less and less the way the that they- The good old days. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's you know much more sophisticated now. They're sitting in a you know in a cafe, uh, hacking away, buying you know data off the black market, and trying to figure out ways to to steal people's assets. Unbelievable. So you led the IPO in 2014. What was that process like going public? And and how happy are you that you're not? You know, a tech unicorn having to face what companies yeah. like Uber and WeWorks are going well, through. Well, look, I I think citizens had uh, that great foundation uh, serving a good part of the country. Uh, because of the troubles of the parent, there was a lot of work to do. So uh, the balance sheet had shrunk dramatically and hadn't kept pace in some ways investing in technology and in our fee-based businesses. And so there was work to do. When we had the deadline in terms of taking it public, uh, the best I could do really was assemble a strong team and board, uh, put together a really good plan and have a vision where we could take the company. But it was, you know, we had to do it within a year. And so we were still operating at relatively poor profitability levels and we still had a lot of gaps, but we had a good story to tell. So Mm -hmm. actually just getting the deal done and getting investors to kind of buy the promise uh, and buy our experience and our vision felt really good. So that was that was important to get that done and launch that. Um, I would say, you know, the experience of going public really helped facilitate our turnaround because uh, usually uh, divestitures, banks get sold. They don't get IPO'd. Right. And so this was an opportunity for me to assemble a management team and say, look, we're in a unique situation where we get the keys to the car and we have the steering wheel and we can take this bank where we want to so we can build a great bank over time and you're going to be a key player in doing that. So that allowed us to, I think, attract the levels of talent that had citizens stayed a part of RBS, we would not have been able to do. And ultimately, in any organization, you win with great people and you win with talent. Uh, so that was that was really positive. I think the other thing also is that it kind of shook up the culture at Citizens that as a sub of a foreign uh, entity that has its own troubles, you could get uh, comfortable and a bit complacent. Right. And so now we had public shareholders who wanted to hear about the long-term vision, but they wanted to see good execution in the near term to, towards that path. Uh, and so we had a higher level accountability that we embedded into the culture. Uh, so we're accountable to shareholders and we're accountable to others to serve our customers better and to run the bank better. So you sit on the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston board representing other banks. What is what is that experience like? Well, that's great. Uh, so uh, if you if you flash back to the last two years, I was on the Federal Advisory Council, so I was representing the the Boston Fed District uh, in meeting with the Fed Board of Governors and talking about issues and making uh, you know giving 
color on economic conditions and offering advice on certain financial matters. So that was good. And then I rolled on to the, to the Boston Fed. And so uh, we talk about the economic conditions in the New England region. Uh, we talk about uh, the macroeconomic uh, dynamics and uh, where interest rates are and where they, where they should go uh, because, uh, you know, the Boston Fed president gets a vote uh, in terms of what to do with interest rates. So, uh, so you're an influencer of him, but not a voting member. Obviously, yeah, obviously, yeah. So <laughs> quite, quite uh, interesting. And you're on the board of Moody's for a couple of years. That's also. Right, right. This is post-crisis. Yeah. What is that experience well, like? You, you, know, you missed all the fun. <laughs> well, what's interesting is uh, you know most CEOs uh, can have one outside board slot, um, mm-hmm. and even when I was a CFO for many years, I always had an outside board slot. When I was in the UK, I was on Lloyd's of London's board. Oh, really? Uh, That's and quite I, and quite I, the entity. Uh, yeah, and I found that. Uh, you know, would complement what I was doing as an executive because they're specialists in risk management, and that's our principal responsibility is right. to make sure we're running a safe and sound institution. And so when I came back from the UK and came into the US, I was looking for a job that would also be complementary where I could continue to uh, stay in tune with uh, the, the, the latest developments in risk management and kind of seeing the lay of the land about how Moody's thought about global risks. And so uh, that was just a natural thing to, for me to go from Lloyd's of London to go on to the board of Moody's. So I've been a critic over the years of the rating agencies, primarily S&P. When you look at the fines post-crisis, I think Moody's paid a million dollar fine S&P paid billions and billions in fines. Yeah, no, it wasn't quite that much of a spread. I think S&P uh, settlement with the, with the DOJ was about uh, a billion three, and uh-huh. Moody's was about 800. So oh, was were, that, yeah. it was so that they close? Were, they were ultimately, but yeah. they all But they pretty much seem to have gotten much less blame in the popular press than S&P. Yeah. I, I don't know why that is, but uh, you're, you're, this predated you by... Yeah, I mean, we had to we that we settled while I was there on the board. Oh, you you did. Okay, we got involved in looking at the facts and looking at the allegations. But I do think Moody's fact pattern generally was was in pretty good shape. Uh, But still, there's some some culpability. You weren't going to escape without some culpability. And I don't know you very well, but I suspect from everything I've learned about you in preparing for this, I suspect you're the sort of guy who comes in and says, "Let's get this resolved. Let's move on. We have a business to run." this happened before, it predates my involvement, let's write that check and, and get on with our lives. Well, I'm just, I'm just one board member, but uh, yeah, we had those types of conversations. <laughs> I can imagine. That the market is really focused on the future. They don't like to have these overhangs uh, the on past, the past, yeah, and so you just sure. got to put them behind you. Let's talk a little bit about Apple. You know, when, when I first started um, reading about Citizens Financial, my initial response was, why is that name so familiar? And I just punched it into the search of my computer. It's like, oh, they finance our our iPhones. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about how did that come about? Uh, what how, I I know that's a relatively minor um, thing in the overall revenues of the bank, but it's kind of interesting because it is a name brand, and you sure. guys are, are pretty well, much think, very public with that. Yeah, to be to be a partner for uh, the most iconic company on the planet, in my view, uh, really is uh, a lot of credibility for us. So, for sure. So we're quite pleased that we hold that position. Uh, you know, we had 
worked with Apple early days uh, when we were uh, building up our student loan business, uh, potentially uh, with a notion that we could help them finance uh, the purchases of their equipment in student bookstores in college. Mm -hmm. And that program didn't really fulfill its potential, um, but I think we got to know them well and they liked our focus on the customer and really obsession around the customer experience because that really defines Apple. So when they were thinking about uh, the upgrade program and how to sell more phones through their stores, uh, we helped work with them on that program and design the financing for that program. Uh, and I think we built a very effective uh, uh, platform uh, to process those transactions. So there's a very small window of time that, as you know, since you, you've in it, you- 12 you, months, you, new phone. Well, but you go into the store, you pick your phone, and then you, we have a little window to make a decision, do we want to finance you uh, in the program or not, and without getting a lot of information. So we've built a very good credit decisioning model and then a very mm -hmm. good processing uh, capability behind the scenes that leads to a very good uh, customer experience, a very highly- uh, rated NPS within the Apple Store experience. So, uh, anyway, it's pretty it's, instantaneous. Yeah, it's it's gone exceptionally well on on the days when they launch uh, a new uh, phone. Uh, we get massive volume that we have to process, and mm -hmm. we've been, always been able to flawlessly execute all that volume. So, so I think it's a, been a good partnership. And uh, the nice thing is the technology platform that we built for Apple. We can move and offer it to other merchants uh, and adapt it to to the needs of other merchants. And so today, we also have ADT and Vivint, two smart alarm companies, mm -hmm. are running similar programs. And we have a number of other big uh, household names uh, in the queue. And so I kind of tease investors. I say, stay tuned. Uh, watch this space because we're going to announce a rollout uh, to some other uh, very highly regarded companies. So I'm, I'm curious as to how this works because when the first time we went to an Apple store to, and I'm always complaining, I'm a power user of phones, and after a year, the battery life starts to die. The last phone I replaced the battery at month 14, and I said, wait, 12 months, new phone? Where do I sign up for that? Yeah. It was a pretty surprisingly quick, you punch a bunch of things in, yeah. date of birth, social security, name, address, Boom. and it's like eight seconds later, you get yeah. an approval. I assume you're looking at things like, credit score, payment history, et cetera. Yeah. What, what, how many data points go into that that it could be yeah, done so quickly? Yeah, a number of data points. Uh, we don't want to give away the full no secret, secret sauce, Barry, <laughs> but uh, you know, I think we feel quite confident of uh, our ability to make good decisions. And I think we now have been at the program now for a number of years. And so we've seen the performance of all the different vintages uh, and they've performed uh, at or above expectations. Uh, do you tweak this on an ongoing yeah, basis? Sure. It's always, how do yep. we make it a little better and a little, that's, that, that's kind of interesting. So I have to think this new iPhone 11, the week it comes out. What is that like? Is this well, just a giant fire hose of data? Or? Yeah, there's, there's a big swell of volume, uh, and uh, it's great for Apple. I think they're pleased with how the 11 is being received in the marketplace. And, there, and, it's gotten great reviews, yeah, and, despite and, the price. It's pretty expensive. Well, they've, they've, had, for, they've had a two-tier pricing. Right. Uh, so I think and you could get the 8 for an, a very cheap price. Yeah, right. They've now covered the full 
spectrum of yeah. prices as opposed to just being That's high right. end. Right. So I think they've thought it through in terms of features and pricing and alternatives, uh, and it's meeting a good reception, which is good for us. That means there's going to be good demand for the phone. Uh, people continue to participate in the upgrade program, and so we continue to grow the balances under the program. I'm an ideal client for you guys. We walk in. What's the biggest phone? What's the top of line? Give me extra storage. Right. Wait, it's 50 bucks a month? Okay, great. We'll take two. Yeah. It really is a very simple thing. And the only problem is you want to upgrade after a year. And sometimes you're waiting a couple of months for a new phone. So you end up holding on to it yeah, longer but, than the But you're never months. really obsolete. You're always getting the latest and right. greatest, which uh, has That's to be goal. very appealing. Uh, well, some yeah. people don't care. Other people want whatever the most buzzworthy yep. thing is. I, I am an early adopter, even though it, it can occasionally be painful yeah. when you buy things before they're really ready for prime time. Um, thankfully, I passed on the Google Glass, but <laughs> anytime I have an opportunity to upgrade the phone, I'm, I'm, I'm there right away. Good. I have to think that where you sit in the economy, looking at consumers, looking at other um, businesses and entrepreneurs, you have to get a really early read on any changes in the economy. Is that a fair statement or am yeah. I overstating it? Yeah, no, look, we're uh, kind of cover three regions of the country. So we have New England, Mid-Atlantic, and Upper Midwest within our footprint. Uh, three we, very different economies, to be different fair. economies. Yeah. And uh, we cover, as I said earlier, the mid-corporate, mid middle market, all the way down to small business. Mm -hmm. And then we have a very big consumer business. So the you know, balance of our businesses is roughly 50-50 between uh, corporate and then also uh, the consumer. Uh, so we get, it, we get a, quite a good read on uh, you know, both data in terms of you know, our, how, how our borrowing patterns, how our charge card usage, et cetera. Uh, and then also anecdotes, just what are we hearing from customers? Uh, what's the businessman doing? Uh, are they buying that next piece of capital equipment? Are they holding back because of the trade tension? Uh, so I think we, we get a well-informed view of what's uh, likely to, to come up in the economy. If there's a recession somewhere out on the horizon, where would you see it first? Is it in spending patterns? Is it in payment patterns? Where, where does the what line of business is most sensitive? Yeah, so I, you know, I think the thing that you really want to keep your eye on uh, is credit deterioration. So meaning late payments, delinquencies. Yeah, yeah. So defaults. in the consumer side, are you seeing migrations into delinquency buckets that people are starting to stretch and have difficulty keeping up with obligations? Same thing on the corporate side of their particular segments uh, of the economy that are starting to stress a little bit. And so to me, that's a key early warning sign. Are you seeing any of that today? Yeah, we're or? not. We're not. Not yet. So, so there was a Wall Street Journal article about middle class consumers moving towards a seven-year versus the old five-year uh, loan for automobiles, and that could be a sign of, of some financial no, I don't, stress. I, I think people maybe are holding their cars longer. It's a little more affordable to stretch the payment out over mm -hmm. a longer time. So, And these cars uh, now last pretty yeah, much forever. They, they do. They do. Hmm. So uh, you're not seeing a lot of people have been nervous about ISM, and I've been nervous about residential sales. And, uh, you know, the recessionistas have been forecasting a recession next year for the past five years. Yeah, right. They, you know, eventually they'll be right, but it doesn't mean- <laughs> Yeah, uh, we, don't, we don't see it. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd say uh, there's some recent data that 
manufacturing sector is a little soft, but you have to remember in the context of the U.S. economy, the economy is powered 70% by consumers, and consumers are in great times. Unemployment's low. People can find jobs. Right. Real wage growth. So you've got uh, wages Ticked growing up, sure. at 3.2%. Inflation's down at one and a half. So people are having expanding uh, net pay uh, over inflation, which is great. Uh, so the, I think the consumer is watching some of the current events. They're watching the trade, and they're watching the uh, impeachment proceedings. But I think they're almost inured to, to that. It's been around for a, a long fatigue. time. For, and it hasn't really caused anything, yeah. and so people are aware of it, but it's not holding folks back. Where it is holding people back a little bit is the kind of middle market companies sitting there saying, how is the trade tension and the tariffs going to impact me? And it's going to impact impact different sectors differently. Again, the service economy is not that impacted by it, but the manufacturing sector is. And fortunately for us, the service uh, sector dominates our economy. So, right. But you guys it, have, have offices in the Midwest. Oh, Are sure. you seeing sure. stresses starting it, it, to form, it, you know, on, at least on a small basis I there? think I think a lot of companies are thinking about their supply chains and how mm-hmm. to adjust their supply chains to try to minimize the impact from the tariffs. And, you know, what it forces everybody to do, including the banks, is how do you get more efficient? If you're going to have these costs that come in from external, from uh, some of the administration policies, then how do we protect our growth and our earnings, et cetera? And so deploying artificial intelligence, deploying robotics, finding ways to keep streamlining how business gets done becomes an imperative. When we think of traditional banks, we tend to think of the yield curve as being a determiner of their profitability. When the yield curve is steep, hey, there's a lot of spread to be captured and they make money. When it's flat, or as we've seen the past quarter, inverted, very challenging for those banks. How does that affect a middle market bank like yourselves? Yeah. Well, it's uh, certainly moved something that's been a tailwind for the last two years. As rates were going up, most banks are what's referred to as asset sensitive. So their loans are repricing faster than deposits and spreads Mm -hmm. are widening. When you have the flip and rates start to move down, then your loans are repricing downward faster than you can reprice your deposits. So it puts a little pressure on your net interest margin. Uh, Certainly, you try to uh, hedge that uh, to some extent, but uh, you are going to have an impact, uh, and NIM will be contracting somewhat. Uh, How do you combat that? I mentioned earlier the the expenses, focused on expenses. We had launched a very big transformational cost program. Uh, We kind of saw the the tea leaves about uh, the Fed going to either pause or maybe start to cut rates. And so we got on this back in December and we launched a big program in July. We're also, over the time, we've been investing in our fee-based businesses and we've done a couple of very smart uh, fee-based acquisitions. What are those fee-based businesses? Well, in the commercial side, we, we purchased uh, two M&A boutiques to broaden out what we can do for our customers. And there's still been a good flow of M&A opportunities occurring in the middle market. Mm-hmm. Uh, we bought a mortgage uh, business, which uh, timing was great on that because as rates go down, as the Fed's cutting rates, it may be crimps your NIM a little bit, but NIM standing uh, for net interest margin, mm-hmm. the spread that you're making on your right. balance sheet. But uh, there's a refi boom like we haven't seen in years taking place. Uh, rates uh, have, have you refinanced your mortgage? Bank? I literally was there Friday yeah. doing the paperwork and 
the numbers are just yeah. insane. Yeah. So, so two eight on a ten one mortgage, and I'll have my mortgage yeah. paid off in ten years. Two point eight percent. Yeah. I don't ever have. I know. I can't recall having heard of rates that low. I I want to say a thirty year fixed was. Three five or yeah, three about six, three and a half. Three. Yeah, it, it, so, these are just so historic these are, rates. These are these are great opportunities for consumers to put more money in their pocket and lock in lower carrying costs on their debt. And so we make fees uh, when that happens. So fortunately, this quarter, we're going to have a really strong third quarter uh, uh, on the fee side, which will offset any of uh, the leakage that we see uh, on the balance sheet income side. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the last acquisition that we did was we bought a high-end wealth advisor um, because what we found is in the corporate side, the business owner, the fourth generation uh, family that uh, is very wealthy and occasionally takes out large dividends from their company and puts debt back on the company, we weren't getting the swings at the bat to manage those assets or to do the estate planning uh, for the company. So the the folks thought of us as their bank, but they would take that business elsewhere. And so we said, look, we should be doing that for those customers. Uh, We went out and bought a company called Klarfeld Asset Management, which is a highly respected wealth advisor in based in Terrytown, New York. And so we're now able to offer those services. So uh, really not trying to do anything too big, but just hitting the sweet spots with kind of rifle shot acquisition program, which has really been positive. So it sounds like your business lines are pretty diversified. Yes. Yes. So that that that's a good thing. It is. Um, so you, you mentioned uh, the Fed pausing and starting to reverse itself. Obviously, mortgages rates make a, a big difference. How, how did QE affect the rest of your business? And, and how does all the noise, which seems to have faded along with the summer about the president and the Fed doing battle, how does that impact what, what you guys do? Well, um, obviously, the, the actions the Fed takes has a direct influence on the economy and on the money supply and the cost of funding. And so uh, it's going to impact banks in a material way. Uh, quantitative easing... I think was uh, a stimulative measure, which basically uh, the Fed was building up their balance sheet, so taking on securities right. and uh, buying those with cash and putting cash back into the system. So it helped promote liquidity and deposit growth and promote lending. Uh, rates came down as they were buying those uh, the, the long end securities. Uh, so you know we just have to be in tune for where the Fed is going, uh, and when we do our forecasting and we do our business planning, uh, we run a dump- bunch of different scenarios. Is it, you know, what happens if this is happening in the economy, then what is the Fed likely to do? Uh, but uh, in any case, we, we just need to be flexible and adapt to the circumstances that we see. So I mentioned diversification, and, and you mentioned you're in the Southeast, Northeast, and Midwest. So Boston, Philly, Pittsburgh, Providence, Detroit, um, any thoughts about expanding elsewhere? Or are you eventually going to be well? National? There's a couple things. So on the on the corporate side, uh, as we move to the mid corporate space, which are slightly bigger companies, five hundred mm-hmm. to three billion, uh, we need to be national in those industry verticals. And so we've 
planted a flag down in Atlanta. So we have about 25 sure. folks down there at this point. Uh, brought a guy out of SunTrust, and he's built a nice team down there. We've uh, expanded now into Texas, which is another big state economy. We always had an energy practice in Houston, but we put some more commercial bankers in Dallas and in Houston. We just hired a fellow to uh, pull together our team out in California. So he's going to be based in LA. And so uh, you know, we'll be, on from a corporate bank standpoint, more of a national player, and I think you're seeing that as a trend for all of the super regional banks. Uh, on the consumer side, we've attacked that uh, our consumer lending operations are national, but uh, in really direct interaction with consumers around deposits, we were the first super regional bank last year to launch a, a, a national digital bank called Citizens Access. Uh, online only. In online only, mm -hmm. uh, focused on savings products. Uh, after a year, we now have five and a half billion of deposits, uh, and so it's been highly successful. And so what we're thinking about now is we've gotten good at that. If you say that's a deposit mining operation, we're able sure. to track deposits. But what else can we do for those customers? And what else can we do for many of the customers we've now assembled through our lending products who might be thin relationship customers. They may know us like you may know us because your Apple loan is with us, but could I come to you, Barry, digitally and offer some things in a bundle to say, hey, that mortgage refinancing, do it with us. Or uh, other needs that you might have, you know, how, to, how to manage your, your wealth portfolio. Uh, we have digital tools that would allow you to do that and be pretty shrewd at how you do it. So uh, that's kind of the next phase for us is we probably don't want to have branches outside of our traditional footprint, but we can, I think, attack the national market digitally. Uh, what you're seeing that's very interesting, there's a lot of experimentation going on. So the mega banks like J.P. Morgan and B of A are saying we're going into all these new cities. They're actually not increasing their branch count. They're thinning branches where they're thick, right. and they're putting them – if. Chase has a big customer base around their Sapphire card in a city. Okay, we should have branches there too so we can do more with those customers. You've seen some super regional competitors like PNC. They now have a digital bank up and running, and they're putting thin offices. They've got three in Kansas City. They're putting 10 or 12 in Dallas. And so everybody's attacking this a little differently. We want to get our brand out there. We want to be more national in scope. Do we need the branches or do we not need the branches? That's one of the key questions that will kind of in the Petri dish right now. We'll see how it plays out. You mentioned super regionals. We seem to go through these cycles where suddenly the majors are acquiring super regionals left and right, and then we enter a lull for a couple of years. What do you see? I know I obviously can't ask you about your bank, but in general, looking at the industry, what do you see for the M&A um, landscape for the mega banks and the super regionals. Are we yeah. done with rolling up for now, or how does that change in well, the future? I think, I think the mega banks, most of them are at the deposit cap, the national deposit cap, mm -hmm. so they're really not players that can't play. Uh, you did see in the super regional space a merger of equal between uh, BB&T and SunTrust, mm -hmm. which I think was fairly unique. It created a Southeast champion. Uh, and uh, I don't think the other super regionals feel compelled to act in the wake of that. I think right now there's so much change taking place in kind of moving your t 
technology ecosystem to the future that right. a merger could be a distraction. So if we can be flexible and nimble and good and make the right decisions, I think we can still compete effectively at our size. So I'm not sure you'll see much more in the super regional space this year. Uh, but I think the smaller banks uh, who really have to contend with all of the cost of that new technology mm-hmm. and some of the cost of regulation, even though the regulators are trying to give them a, cut them a little slack, I think there's an impetus to see the smaller end of the market continue to consolidate. We, so, we had an issue post-crisis, or at least compared to pre-crisis, a lot more mega banks, a lot less competition, more of the national assets held by fewer banks. Is that an attempt to sort of resolve that issue or or am I reaching too much here? Yeah, I think you're reaching a bit. <laughs> I, I, I think if you just look at the trend, uh, 20 years ago, there were 14,000 depository institutions in the right. US. Five years ago, it was seven. Today, it's like five. And so you're just seeing that cons- in, in, inevitable consolidation because mm-hmm. we still have I think, a much more fractured uh, banking landscape than any other country. We have been speaking with Bruce Van Sorn. He is CEO of Citizens Financial Group. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, be sure and come back for the podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things banking-related. You can find that wherever your finer podcasts are sold, iTunes, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, we love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Give us a review on Apple iTunes. Be sure to check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com. Sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Bruce, thank you so much for doing this. I um, It's always funny when I see different names I have this pet theory that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people working who have a giant impact on everybody's day-to-day life, and nobody knows who they are. Everybody knows who Steve Jobs was. Not everybody knows who Bruce Van Sorn is, and yet you're impacting what what people do. So I was, uh, I was looking forward to this. There were a couple of questions I did not get to that uh, I'm going to try and run through now, and then we'll we'll do our favorite questions, and we'll get you over to TV on time. Um, oh, so you guys went public in 2014. I've I've we have all heard lots of folks complain about the IPO process and how difficult it is being a public company. How does that square up with your experiences running a private company and then taking it public? Yeah, so uh, you know I actually. Um, think it's been very positive uh, for citizens. Part of it is where we came from. Uh, we had to turn around the bank. And so uh, having uh, an interested investor community and 22 sell-side analysts uh, f- focused on us and prodding on our long-term strategy and putting estimates as to how fast we could turn around the bank, uh, it certainly raised the level of accountability and I think our ability to execute uh, improved. Um, you know, when I, when I think about the trade-offs, people say, well, 
private companies can can quote unquote go long. They can think long term and make the investments for the long term, and they're not kind of hemmed in by the need to deliver quarterly results. Um, I actually think that if you communicate effectively what you're trying to do for the long term and you say, I'm going to need to invest some money in this and this is why I'm doing it and this is how fast I think I'll get the payback, there are long-term investors out there who uh, who appreciate that, who want to invest with a growth story, with a management team that's trying to grow the franchise and not just uh, really focus on cost cut and he- the delivering for the next quarter and buying back shares. And so we've tried to balance that. We've tried to make sure that we're executing well and putting points on the board and showing a good trajectory in the short term, but we're also doing significant reinvesting uh, and trying to grow the bank so that we make it stronger five years from now and 10 years from now. So all the complaints about how um, onerous being a public company is and the threats from Activist investors is is that all overstated or what do you think? Uh, of look, if you if you run the company well and you actually uh, think through an activist agenda, like what am I missing in terms right. of, of my own plans? Are there if an activist was involved in this company, what would they do? Would they take capital away from these lending portfolios and move it to this lending portfolio? It actually you can proactively anticipate. Uh, where they would where they would make suggestions and just get ahead of it and and you know it's helpful to to kind of keep that mindset. It it insulates you from attack if you're beating them to the punch. Yeah, hmm, interesting. I I mentioned you're on the Federal Reserve Bank of of Boston as well as uh, the board of directors at Moody's. There were two other things I wanted to mention because I think they're both interesting. You're a board member for the Bank Policy Institute. What does the Bank Policy Institute do? What are you? What is your involvement? Uh, tell us a little bit about yeah, that institution. Sure. So the Bank Policy Institute is a relatively new creation with a, a long history and legacy organization before it, which was originally the Bankers Roundtable, which became the Financial Services Roundtable. Mm-hmm. I think- uh, What's yeah. the correlation between this so, and the so, Financial so the, Services? So, so now BPI has effectively succeeded the Financial Services Roundtable. Gotcha. And I think there was a desire at one point to- put different industry groups in financial institutions under one roof. So when it was the bankers roundtable, it was just bankers, then it was financial services. And so asset managers and insurers all got together and we would have meetings and interact uh, you know, on policy and uh, talk to folks down on the Hill. A lot of the meetings would be in Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, over time, I think the agendas of the different subsectors were different. So uh, under Brian Moynihan's leadership, who runs B of A, Mm -hmm. it was determined that the banks should split off and keep a kind of larger bank profile, minimum asset size 25 billion, would throw in to this Bank Policy Institute uh, and effectively work on policy matters and things that impact the economy and have an ability to, you know, effectively operate like a think tank, put out papers and monitor what the Fed is doing and respond to uh, requests for proposals from the regulatory agencies and have an ongoing dialogue with members of Congress so they were informed on financial issues that impact the real economy. 
Huh, quite interesting. Yeah. And then you are also a board member of the Partnership for Rhode Island and Jobs from Massachusetts. Yeah. What do these two groups do? Well, those are uh, efforts to uh, stimulate the local economy and uh, get business people to work together to uh, help the governors uh, of those uh, states, uh, you know, drive pro-business and and pro-growth and pro-jobs agendas. Uh, and so the the one that uh, uh, we've had some really good traction in particular with Partnership for Rhode Island where uh, we focused on uh, education uh, and and uh, also business attraction and uh, transportation, which are important to improving the Rhode Island economy. Uh, one thing we did recently is we funded the Johns Hopkins review of the Providence school system, which mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen that. It caught a lot of national press, but uh, basically was – Pretty damning of the state of the school system, and uh, now it couldn't, looks couldn't like you the, say that in pretty much any school system well, in the United States? Yeah, but uh, some are better, this, some are worse. This was this was really kind of pretty low down the totem pole, mm-hmm. and there needs to be change. And so the state's going to take over the administration of that school district, and I think make the changes that'll make sure those kids in that community really have a chance to prosper when they come of age and are entering the job market. So uh, those things. Feel Feel good, um, you know, working in collaboration with governors and with the government to to you know bring business uh, influence and money behind things that are going to improve local economies. One of the things I've noticed with some of the business development groups has been a sort of, and we saw a little bit of this with the Amazon headquarter bake off, but we've seen this sort of tendency to give the store away in order to attract specific companies as opposed to just creating an environment that is um, helpful and easy to operate in for businesses. What do you think of those? Uh, It's almost like a race to the bottom as to who could cut taxes the most. I'm not a big proponent of that. And, uh, you know, we had an opportunity um, a, a, a couple of years ago. We hit a fork in the road. We had a very large leased facility in the greater Providence area Mm -hmm. and a couple other smaller leases that meant uh, 3,200 people were, uh, you know, kind of going to roll off their current occupancy and we could either renew or do something different. Uh, We decided to break ground and build our own campus in a town called Johnston, Rhode Island, which is a little west of Providence. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got 3,200 people there, 420,000 square feet. Uh, That's beautiful, a big building. Beautiful campus with uh, sports fields that we share with the local community, walking trails through the woods, uh, and we didn't take any funding. We didn't try to hold up Rhode Island and say, I want you to compete against Massachusetts. We just said, this is where we want to be. This is where our history uh, has had us, and we have a great uh, colleague base here. Uh, and so, you know, the, I think the government was helpful in getting things we needed, like an, ex- that was my next question. an exit ramp off of the highway into our campus, for example. So there were. Isn't that what the state or the local city is supposed to yeah. be doing as opposed yeah. to tax giveaways? Right. So that we, we split the cost with the state. So we mm-hmm. paid half and they paid half for that exit ramp, for example. And, mm-hmm. you know, some of the local. That seems th- fair. Some seems of the reasonable. local authorities put sewer lines in and on an expedited basis so we could get the campus up and running. So, uh, yeah, I think it was, it was the right thing to do and we didn't have our hand up. I, I have some uh, NFL team owners. I'd like to introduce you to. <laughs> Maybe you convince them to stop being socialists yeah. and actually embrace capitalism. You own a football team. 
build your own damn stadium. Yeah. I know that doesn't win me any friends, but it just seems like a reasonable thing to do. Um, I just was reading uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Their stadium needs uh, an upgrade, and they're asking the taxpayers to pay a couple hundred million dollars. You're a billionaire. Fix your own stadium. Yeah. Leave us out of it. It. Uh, I can't. Obviously, I'm not going to talk about anything in Boston sports as a New Yorker. I, I, I just don't even want to go there. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's see if there's any other questions I missed that I wanted to get to. We talked about that. We talked about that. Uh, all right. So let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask uh, our guests. These are the 10 questions that are supposed to be revealing of who you are and how you got that way. Tell us the first car you ever own, year, make, and model. Uh, Ford Mustang II. Really? Uh, 1974. Oh, uh, okay. I'm I sorry. was still a year <laughs> away from my license, uh, but I had worked summer jobs, and my dad said, I'll pay $2,000 to any car. you got to come up with the difference. Right. We paid $3,200 for that car. And so when I got my license, I was driving a brand new car. So wait, you bought that car before you yeah, ha- actually yeah, had a license? Was a, it was the model year was letting out or something, so my right. father thought he could get a deal on it. So, But it, I- Pick it up at the end of the year. I had the $1,200 from working summer jobs, so I put up my share. That That's great. Um, what's the most important thing people don't know about Bruce Van Zaun? Uh, I... I you know, one of my early jobs was as a landscaper, uh-huh. summer jobs to make that money for the car. Uh, and I still love to garden to this day. So I uh, take uh, great pride in uh, designing a nice landscape and then maintaining it. Uh, tell us about your early mentors. Who helped guide your career? Well, uh, I, I always mention my parents because mm-hmm. I think they gave me a great foundation and moral compass. Uh, but, uh, you know, as you as you grow up, it's your teachers and favorite sports coaches. And so that all goes into making you who you are. Uh, and then I had some great people that I worked for. Um, I had a fellow at General Mills, my first job out of college, who was – tall, lanky, athletic guy like me, but really smart, had worked at General Motors, learned a lot from him. He was very decisive. Uh, worked for Bruce Wasserstein, one of the smartest oh, sure. guys on the planet. Uh, he had a, There were a lot of Bruceisms that I picked up and a lot of wisdom. And so I always found that uh, if you want to you know, move ahead in a career, that you're, you should look for great people to work for that you can learn from. So when they're interviewing you, you should also be interviewing them to make sure that these are people that really are going to have an impact on you. What about bankers that influenced the way you look at the business of banking? Who who uh, affected your Probably, approach? Uh, two uh, bankers that I would call out. Uh, Tom Rennie was my boss at uh, the Bank of New York for many mm-hmm. years, and I think Tom had a had a just great stoicism to to hand be inflappable under all kinds of scenarios, um, and uh, kind of it's never. It's always darkest just before the dawn. That kind of mentality. It's not uh-huh. as good as you think it is when it's when it's uh, going really well, and just kind of keep that even keel. And then uh, the second one was Stephen Hester when I worked over at RBS, um, who was under immense pressure to get RBS uh, righted, but 
just was so unflappable under all that pressure. Um, and again, keeping that even keel uh, and uh, just super, super smart, uh, really good thoughts about how to go about that turnaround, which some of those things I've, I've applied to citizens on a smaller scale, obviously, than RBS. Uh, what about books? Tell us about your favorite books. What do you enjoy to read? Uh, I read a wide uh, range of books. Uh, I read a lot of business books. Uh, I read, uh, you know, Tom Clancy, Harlan Coben, those kind of books. Mm -hmm. Probably the the book that's had the biggest impact to me uh, my whole life was The Power of Positive Thinking by Norman Vincent Peale. Sure. Uh, so that was a that, giant. that really positive attitude, which I read probably when I was in my early 20s. Uh, so I totally enjoy reading. Unfortunately, I have... I have so much reading to do for work and such an extensive 24-7 work agenda that I don't read as much as I could, but I still probably read a dozen books a year, I would say. Give, give us another title, one other that you really enjoyed. I would, you know, I just, I just read uh, a very interesting book. Um, I can't, I don't remember the title, but it was about uh, an, an elephant uh, trainer who basically led these elephants uh, in World War II in the kind of Burmese jungle, which to me was really fascinating. Let's see if I can find how Burmese elephants helped defeat Japanese <laughs> in World War II. Yes. Elephant Company. There it is. Is that Was that, that the name was of it. it? That was the name. Let me, get, let me see if I can read the exact name. That's wild. By Vicky Croak. Yeah. Elephant Company, the inspiring story of an unlikely hero and the animals who helped save him lives in World War II. Yeah. Wow, that's quite quite fascinating. Yeah. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. But by the way, a thousand ninety-two reviews, five stars. That's pretty that's yeah. pretty impressive. Yeah, it was a good book. So you might want to put that one on your list. Yeah, I definitely will. Um yeah. tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Uh you know, I'd I'd say getting cut from a sports team was kind of a, a big moment for me. I was a tall what guy. What sport did you play, basketball? I, I played baseball, basketball, and a little bit of football for a couple of years. But I got cut from the varsity team as a sophomore in high school, uh, and I really was angry. You went through all the emotions that go with that. Right. But I picked myself up, and we went. a bunch of us went and joined a travel basketball team, and we played you know we had so much fun and then we got to play the high school team in a kind of just a, a, a braggadocio game i'll bet you were better than you and we beat the high school team when we got that's to play. great so, that's great revenge that that's a little bit revenge. of a michael jordan yeah. didn't make i think he was a freshman yeah though, he got he cut yeah so. uh and he used it as motivation yeah. as well what do you do for fun? What do you, are you still playing hoops or no more? Nah, it's, it's a little risky at this age. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I still enjoy sports, so golf, tennis, swimming. Mm -hmm. uh, like to go to the beach. Uh, you mentioned I, you sail? Yeah, I was a, a commodore at our, at our sailing club. Uh, so love the water um, and, you know, like good dining, going out, uh, uh, having a good time with the family and friends. Um. Well, you got plenty of choices for restaurants. Restaurants here. Yeah. So, in the banking industry today, what are you most optimistic about, and what are you most pessimistic about? Well, I'd say, um, you know, when I look at at this country, the U.S. that that we serve, that citizens serves, I think it's the greatest country on the planet. Um, 
And, uh, you know, we have our troubles, we have our challenges, we're not perfect. Uh, but over time, we've continued just to, I think, get it right. Uh, and we're, we have an innovative society, we've got the big tech companies, we're trying to improve people's lives. And so I just think about how the quality of life in the country is so much better than it was in 1950, 1975, 2000. Just think where it's going to be going forward. So I'm optimistic about that. Um, I'd say the things that I'm disappointed in or pessimistic about is that people don't feel good about it. So mm-hmm. the flip side of that is we have so much to be thankful for and so much to to count our blessings for, but everybody seems to be grumpy and angry and not step back and say, gosh, look look what we have. Uh, so anyway, I think we've lost our soul a little bit. We've lost our spirituality, which I'd love to see that rejuvenate at some point. It, it does seem that people are a, uh, a little more divided, a little more angry. It's It's some of it's social media, but some of it is just, you know, this, the post-crisis state of affairs. Yeah. People never really fully recovered their optimism uh, yeah. after that. It took a long time after the Great Depression before that, and a, and a world war, before people seemed to yeah. resurrect that can-do American spirit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a millennial, or I'm going to say that again, because I have to drop millennial because they're too old now. Ah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So a recent college grad comes to you and says they're interested in banking. What sort of career advice would you give them? I tell them it's a great career. And, uh, you know, what I I love about it, I think it's a noble profession. So I tell people, look, you get to positively impact people, individuals, uh, communities, local economies by what you do in your day job working as a banker. But then we also have a platform that you can uh, volunteer off that platform and further that impact on local communities. And so, for example, Citizens Bank, when I joined six years ago, we were volunteering about 50,000 hours. We really had a focus on upping that. And today, this year, we're going to hit about 150,000 volunteer hours. Uh, We have 700 people serving on local boards uh, Mm -hmm. around our footprint. And so... Uh, if you want to uh, have a career where you can learn, be challenged, constantly evolving landscape that you have to contend with, but uh, importantly, you can positively benefit the the, the, the people that uh, you live with and the local communities and economies that you live in, banking's a great career. So normally I don't ask follow-up questions in this segment, but you just made me think of something. Not too long ago, the business roundtable changed their perspective on um, the end goal of the corporation is maximizing shareholder profits. They now look at it as there are many different constituencies. um, And that that seems to have been a pretty large sea change. What did you think of what – it sounds like you've already adopted that. Yeah. What did you think of this shift? Well, I think it's been a little controversial because ultimately you're working for your shareholders. You know, management is an agent for the shareholders of the bank. Mm -hmm. I think all those uh, different stakeholders work together. Um, And so you're trying to deliver for customers, for communities – uh, for your colleagues, the three C's. Uh, if you're regulated, you got to run a business the right way for the regulators.
regulators. Right. You've got to deliver for the shareholders. You want to get that flywheel working, but to me, it comes back to the shareholder. If you're running the bank well, uh, you'll have the resources to keep investing in all the, the deliverables for those other stakeholders. So I'm, you know, I like the concept of broadening it out and making sure that people are thinking it's not all about the bottom line, but still, I think the shareholder is the one that you have to please first and foremost. They're the ones with the acts if, if you're not pleasing yeah, them. Right. To, to say you the can't least. go pursue your own agenda and make the other stuff more important and then see the stock not perform well and the bottom line not perform well. It, <laughs> it should work together. And our final question, what is it that you know about the world of banking today that you wish you might have known 30 years ago? Uh, I... I I think it's just a cumulative process where where you go through life and you learn things. Um, I don't I don't have any aha moments. I just have gained a lot of wisdom by working in different companies, and I think you know just that that uh, that banks have a big role to play in the economy. They have to be run well in a safe and sound fashion. They have to be focused on delivering for customers. Um, and you know, I think you've you've come to that knowledge over time. I don't I don't know if there's an aha thing that I said, God, I would have run my career differently if I knew it back then. I think I've just you know evolved with the changes in the industry, and I think I have a pretty good concept of what banking's all about at this point. Fair enough, Bruce. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Bruce Van Son. He is the chairman and CEO of Citizens Financial Group. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see any of the previous 275 or so such conversations that we've had over the past five and a half years. Uh, we love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Be sure and give us a lovely review on Apple iTunes. I would be remiss if I did not mention the crack staff that helps put together these conversations each week. Cowan O'Brien is my audio engineer. Uh, Michael Boyle is my producer slash booker. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.